It's my favorite time of the year, going into the fall when all the kids go back to school because they're not surfing anymore. <laughs> You're like, oh, the crowds are gone. Like, yay. Um, well, we're going to jump in here and continue in our study through the parables. And um, we've got a good one today. Um, before I do that, um, let me just embarrass somebody here. But um, we've got a special guest going to be here next Sunday, and it's John Collins from the Bible Project. How many of you guys have like watched the Bible Project? See, you're a celebrity to me, John. So, um, but John and his friend Tim have done this project that I think is profound, where they've taken theology and basically presented it with a sort of animation in the backdrop to draw out the, the depth and the beauty and the signs and the symbols and connect the dots through Scripture. And I'm fascinated by this project, partially because I just think it's artistically so excellently done, but it also, in this day and age, is having this powerful like sort of unifying ability, which pretty much nothing else is in this world, right? Everything is like splintered and divisive. And I see the work that they're doing as so vital for the church. So we're going to have a chance next Sunday to hear from John. And um, I'm going to ask him some questions too. And we're going to get to the bottom of it, how they've done this profound thing. But um, if you haven't, here's your assignment between now and then. If you haven't seen anything by the Bible Project, Go watch something, and um, and I promise you, you'll end up going down a rabbit hole because you'll go from video to video to video. And um, yeah, my wife's got some questions for you, by the way. So (laughs) anyway, we'll get to that next week. Um, Today, as we go to our parable, um, well, first off, I just love that song from Bob, "Jesus in Our Time." To me, Um, I think captures something there of uh, not only what is what is the heart of this, what the point of this all is about, but often something that we, we can fail to do as a church if we're not careful that we become an organization that exists for our own sake or just kind of puts on programs and things like this without realizing that, that at the very center there's something profoundly transformative that must be going on. That, that what is happening, and, and we've talked about this as kind of our vision statement, that, that we're here and we gather, not just for a, a pep talk or a shot in the arm. We, we're actually on this journey to become like Jesus for the sake of others. And, and this is right at the heart of our vision for, for what we are here to do. And I hope for each one of you that you come in leaning into that work to become like Christ to become like Christ in mind, in heart, in desire, in intention, that this we begin to function in a way that, that as it turns out, is very different than, than what we've sort of naturally been led to believe. There's a, a transformation of our minds and our hearts that has to take place, that we're learning to think like Jesus thought, to love like Jesus loved, to behave like Jesus behaved. And when we do that, we become salt and we become light in this world. We bring hope. We bring a transcendent message that, again, as I've said, our world is desperate for. And in our parable, I think we see a very unique look into this heart of God today. And and that's what I'm excited to bring to you. Um, In a parable that 
that I would put personally in, in the category of one of the difficult ones. Some people have said this is like the quintessential parable of the gospel. And, and one person even said that I read that this is like the high point of Matthew's gospel, this parable. But more than anything, I read people saying, we're not totally sure what this parable means. Which, that's, that's part of the gift of parables, right? Is that we have to work at them. They require a growth mindset. When we come to them, we, we go, all right. I was hoping this was going to be challenging, right? Here we go. Um, because they're about wisdom. And they're about changing and challenging our biases, our assumptions, our like wrongful conclusions. And then showing us a whole new way to live and that new way for Jesus, that greater way, he is going to refer to again and again as the kingdom. This greater reality. The way things really are, not just in our sort of limited scope and limited mindset, but in a way that looks from the outside in, that sees eternity and all of its complexity and beauty. So hopefully this morning as we come to our text, we get a window into this complexity and beauty, as well as vision for our lives. So you're all wondering, which parable is this? And it's the parable of the workers in the vineyard, and it's in Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read the whole thing for us here, so we'll kind of get get our heads around this first part, and then I'm actually going to do what I've done a few times and kind of back up into the context and help us kind of see it in perspective here. Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So those who came first were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The word of the Lord. Now, does anybody see the conflict here? How many of you are like feeling this sense of like, what in the world? Like... Not fair, right? It's not fair. Like, what is Jesus trying to show us here? The people that showed up at the end of the day get the same amount as the guys who started first and did the bulk of the work and worked in the heat of the day. 
How is this like the kingdom? And how is this good news? And what does that even mean at the end? The last will be first and the first will be last. Some commentators have thought that like Matthew just dropped that in there, like going, does that even pertain to the parable itself? It finishes with this little proverb there at the end. And we don't know really the context around this. Who is Jesus talking to? Some have thought maybe it's the Pharisees and this is a correction for them. Some have thought maybe it's the Jewish people or maybe the disciples themselves. But when we don't even know that, we don't even know the audience, it becomes difficult. Is this the way that we're supposed to behave? Is this justice? Or is this a picture of grace? What does this look like? And though we don't know the context of this, we we do have, I think, a clue. And it's given to us in how Matthew has chosen to arrange his gospel that, that each of the gospel writers has a little different sequence of events. They aren't all just writing this like perfectly linear version of the order in which Jesus taught these things, but instead taking these and placing them in such a way that it reveals a greater message and a more specific message to each of those gospels. For instance, John writes his whole gospel around signs that Jesus did, did all pointing to who he was as God and Messiah. And so in Matthew, we can, we can go and look and see if we pick up any glimpses or hints from the text, the context itself. And, and what we find, if you're like scrolling through your app, if you go to the verse right before this, it says, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So it's an interesting thing that you have sort of bookends around this parable. This proverb that we see placed at the end is also right there, at least in the text, at the beginning. Or it serves as a sort of transition. And as we kind of rewind what's happening, we get an interesting picture into what the context of this might be. You following me? It's called an inclusio, by the way, that little bookend thing. Um, and it was a, just a Jewish literary device for how they would get us to pay attention to the content in between and, and how this whole thread or ideas was all one. And if we rewind back into Matthew 19, what we find is a, is a moment that I, you've all heard mentioned, but um, one that I like am particularly drawn to, which is a discussion between Jesus and this young ruler. And the young ruler comes up and he asks Jesus this question. It's a question we see asked often. In fact, Greg, in his parable last week, referred to this question as well as one of the questions that learned people would ask, that if you were a student or a studier of scripture or a religious person, that you would be asking this question, what is eternal life and how do you get it? And this young ruler asks it in kind of a unique way. He says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What must I do? And what we find for him is is that he's kind of going, is there anything I'm missing here? Because I'm pretty sure I've got this whole thing dialed in. So he's asking Jesus, is there any any extra credit assignments or anything like that? Um, What good deed? Is there any good deed that I haven't yet done? And Jesus' response is, he says, why are you asking me what's good? Only the Father knows 
what is good. And there's, well, in fact, to be more accurate, he says there's only one who is good with an implication of. It is God who ultimately determines that. And this is kind of a a funny little exchange, right? Because the guy's asking Jesus a question, and Jesus is going, you should ask God, except he is, but accidentally, right? He's asking the right guy. Jesus knows the answer to this. And so Jesus speaks this divine revelation and says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And what we know about this story is this young man's heart falls because we're told he has great possession. We're told also in the text that Jesus looks at him and loves him and then says that to him, that these words are said with this heart of um, deep compassion for the man. And the man leaves, and he leaves dejected. And Jesus turns to his disciples. And he refers then to this narrow way. He says, it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of debate around that. What does that mean? Is the eye of the needle an actual literal gate? Some thought that like it, you know, was tight to squeeze through or or maybe it actually means a needle and like good luck fitting a camel through the eye of a needle. Whatever the case is, the disciples understand the point. Like then who can make it into this kingdom of God? Jesus says with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then Peter, (laughs) this is to me where I'm building to, says, well, we've left everything and followed you. What will we have? Right? We did that thing that that guy couldn't do. Like, (laughs) yes. And Jesus is going to say, oh, you are going to have a reward. You're going to sit in a throne you're going to be returned a hundredfold to. And you can imagine Peter going, that's just what I wanted to hear, right? Peter, who's like the first team, like first guy signed up. It's like he's this first adapter into this new kingdom movement. Man, when he gets to heaven and opens up that envelope, it is going to be stacked with cash, And Jesus says, many who are first will be last and the last first, and then goes into this parable. So what I'm guessing, and this is my guess, is that this parable is for Peter and probably for the disciples who all we know sort of thought the same thing. We're getting in early with a really good thing, and the payout is going to be huge. And so Jesus tells this story and he walks them through a full day's worth of work, 12 hours in the day, sunrise to sunset. And what we see is the owner of this vineyard going out and and drawing more and more employees as the day goes on. And people have done a ton of allegorizing with what these different time periods mean. What is 
you know, the, the six and then the nine and then the eleven. What do these things stand for? And um, the truth is, we don't know. It could be reference to history. It could be reference to stages of life. But, but all in all, I think it really isn't what's at the focus here. Except that for each of these later ones, he's saying to them, I'll pay you what is right. Each of these is doing less and less and less as the day goes on, working less. And they're working for a denarius, which is actually not a great sum of money. It would be like a decent day's wage. It's like, let's say it's 200 bucks. Kind of like minimum wage. Apparently, like you had to work, if you worked 200 days a year for a denarius each day, that was like the poverty line, right? So these guys aren't making a ton of money. Um, These guys that show up at the 11th hour, go first, and they walk up and they open their envelope and go, 200 bucks, one denarius. They're like, you can imagine the first guy's like, just keep walking, like, <laughs> like probably got the wrong envelope, but I'm not going to worry about it. But, but eventually, it comes out, like these guys that showed up at, you know, the last, they showed up at 5 p.m. and worked till 6, and they got $200. The guys that are there first are going, nice. So that's what, like $2,400 that I'm going to have in my envelope. Except when they get it, there's just 200 bucks. There's just a denarius. And they feel ripped off. Which, by the way, Jesus knows as he's telling this parable, that's how we're going to respond, right? That's not like a surprise here. This sort of, ugh, is part of what the parable's supposed to do. This isn't fair. And he says to the worker as much, or the the vineyard owner, this isn't fair. Like, we were out there at noon when it was blistering hot, and these guys show up in the cool of the evening, do hardly any work. Why would you pay them the same amount? And the owner of the vineyard says, because I want to. (laughs) Which is interesting, right? He doesn't even justify it. He just goes, it's my money. It says there in the text, and this is kind of a little bit misleading, but it says, he says this like, you got what I meant to pay you, like what we agreed upon, friend. And uh, that word friend there is like filled with sarcasm. It's like saying, buddy. <laughs> so, so he's not even really being particularly kind here. Like, hey, it's my money, pal. And it's like, Take what you got and go, right? And, and what you see here again is, is this window into this vineyard owner basically saying, this is what I value. So much so that he's the one going and hiring at each stage of the day. And what we see is a vineyard owner who's moved with compassion to the ones who have been left out. As he walks up, these people that have basically sat there with absolutely nothing because they probably didn't have the skills or possessed the strength or whatever it was to be picked. They were overlooked. They were the ones that were like seen as like not worth the effort. And the vineyard owner goes, oh, yeah, yeah come work. In fact, you get a whole day's pay. This person in the end that protests, 
Maybe it's Peter, maybe it's not. Whoever that is, uh, the, our text refers to as, as being envious. And um, the, the actual it talks about like their eye being wicked. Um, an evil eye is the way it's literally written in the text, which has been, I think, rightfully interpreted as envy or can be seen as stingy, whatever that is. There's something wrong with the way this person sees, and I think that's helpful. This this envy occurs. And I think um, if Brene Brown was here, she would go, oh, jealousy is a better word than envy. I just learned this from her where she was going, envy is when you like somebody has what you want. Right, but jealousy is different. Jealousy is when when somebody has this thing, it feels like it costs you something. Does that make sense? So what does this cost? Well, I mean, part of it is their sense of probably fairness and justice, but they probably see themselves as like the one who's contributed the most. They're like a a person that's worth more than these others. That there's, there's sort of a, a sense of self or an identity or an, an ego that's attached probably to being the person chosen to go first. That as that vineyard worker came and looked over the crowd in the morning, they probably knew they were going to get picked. Probably like took their shirt off, right? And were like, <laughs> you pretty much want me. And so they get picked first because there's a sort of natural draw to this person. And I think sometimes this is the way that, let's just call it privilege, works, is is we think in our talents and our abilities that somehow we can pat ourselves on the back, like we've earned those, when so often those are things that really we've just been entrusted with. I've talked about this, how most of us are born on third base and we think we hit a triple. Right? And you're like, it's just not the case, right? These guys, they're like sitting there going, I deserve more than this guy, even though they were given the agreed upon amount. And, and as Peter is picturing, picturing eternal life and he's picturing reward and he's picturing glory and what this is going to look like, he's going, gosh, what, what's the payout going to be? And in some regards, it's like Jesus is saying, it's going to be enough. It's going to be enough. And we go, yeah, as long as it's more than that guy, right? I think Jesus goes, it's not how it works. If you think that that's how it works, you're going to be disappointed. If you think that's how it works, and when you see that other person open up their envelope and it's the same as yours, you're going to be jealous. And there's a danger in this, in the eye itself, like a, a stinginess that, that comes in in this place, and it's dangerous. It affects the way we see. It affects the way we experience life. That evil eye, it, it shows up in Proverbs as stinginess. And then it refers in 22.9, I think it refers to the eye as generous, as one that gives to the poor. And see, if we want to understand and become like Christ, which means we want to love the things that Jesus loves, this giving to the poor is right at the heart of it. It's right at the heart. Finding the least 
and giving them just as much as everybody else. In fact, handing them their check first. This way of thinking, this is the way that Jesus is telling us his ideas, his thoughts, his drive, his desires are wired this way. And so should ours be. But why? Because he would say, this is the way to an abundant life. If you want to experience the fullness of life, have a generous eye. If you want to experience the depth and meaning of life, give sacrificially and compassionately to the poor. Give them the best seat. Now, I don't know if Jesus is the vineyard owner in this parable, but I like how in John 17, he, he refers to himself as not just teacher and master, but, but also like their employer and models to them how the job is done, right? And you remember this in John 13, sorry. They walk into this room for a celebration and Jesus takes an apron and wraps it around his waist and goes down and washes their feet. And I want to read just 12 through 17 from the message because he's going like, look, I'm showing you what to do. You guys do it. And by the way, this is how to live a blessed life. He says, "Um, do you understand what I've done to you? You address me as teacher and master and rightly so. That's what I am. So if I, the master and the teacher washed your feet, you must now wash each other's feet. I've laid down a pattern for you. What I've done, you do. I'm only pointing out the obvious. A servant is not ranked above his master. An employee doesn't give orders to the employer. If you understand what I'm telling you, act like it and live a blessed life. And, you know, maybe you're sitting there like the rich young ruler going, "Eh, no thanks, right? Like, isn't the point is to accumulate all this stuff, right? And like... And when we do that, it shows our importance, it shows our value. Except ultimately in the end, it just makes us miserable, (laughs) right? How many times have we seen that over and over, and yet we still keep going that direction as if just a little bit more is going to solve that problem? I like how Aquinas says, pride is the pursuit of self to our own misery, something like that. And here even Peter's caught up in that. This like, I want to be like everybody else, just better. (laughs) And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you got it exactly wrong. And if you want to receive the reward, come do the work with me. I love this about what Jesus says to this young ruler. Come with me. That's the gift. That's the reward. What? Intimacy, generosity, living a life of deep compassion. That's where the joy is. I love that this story takes place in a vineyard, and I don't think that's an accident. This isn't just grain that they're threshing. These are grapes for wine. And we know this in reading through Scripture that the symbols matter, all of these things, right? And wine is one of those that shows up again and again and again. It represents their calling. In fact, when 
James and John, their mom comes and appeals on their behalf. Could they have like the best seats? Can they be on the right and left? And Jesus says, I don't know. Can they drink the cup? And they go, yeah. And Jesus says, oh, you will. (laughs) And we know this, that part of the image of the wine and the work and the cost is is to drink the cup, that that this may be the, the heat of the day. And the difficulties, we know that Jesus himself was going, oh, take this cup from me, right? But then he sits with his disciples, and as he holds up that last cup, he's saying, this final cup is the cup I'm going to drink with you at the feast that is to come. That the wine points to the wedding, the wine points to Jesus' very first miracle, It points to the sacrifice and the suffering in life. All of this is caught up in this idea of the vineyard. In the work, Jesus is the one who's the employer is showing them how to do the work. And then he's saying, you now go do it. You go wash other people's feet. You participate in the cultivation of the wine. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And this deep work, it's having an effect not just in what we do, but in who we are that you are the thing that's being prepared for eternity. And the suffering and the labor becomes part of that preparation. To join in the work is the reward. I like how Greg said last week, it's, it, it's not like what do I do, but who am I? Like to be a neighbor, to be one who neighbors becomes an identity. We become the one that moves toward the one suffering. We become the one who moves with compassion towards those that are broken and hurting. But wine is more than just sacrifice. It's also celebration. And there is abundance here, but we've got to look to the right place. We're we're told that in heaven that the streets are paved with gold, right? And I think in some ways, it's because they go, yeah, that's asphalt in heaven, right? Like, how we're going, gold is everything, right? And Jesus is like, no, we, pa- we pave the streets with that stuff, right? If you've got this sort of inheritance of accumulation and reward, if that's your goal, you're going to get there and realize there's more of that than you can imagine. And the value just isn't really there. They drive on that stuff, right? Um, I mean, they build houses out of gems because that's just lumber for them, right? Like they go, that's not where the value is. I could be wrong in that, but I think it's also beautiful too. I don't mean to diminish the gold streets, but the symbol of that I think is interesting that we see that through a lens of like such scarcity and that's the thing to clutch to. And I think in heaven, God's going, oh, that's just not the thing of value. In fact, if this is really about grace, their salary isn't that much, right? 
Isn't that interesting? They get a day's pay, and it's actually sort of low on the scale. And it just reminds me of this idea in heaven, what will we receive? And I think God's saying, your daily bread, you'll receive enough. You'll be cared for. So where is the lavishness? Where is the richness of heaven? I think it's in the banquet. It's in the feast where all are drawn to this table and none has a better seat than the other or the least might get to sit at the head table and, and we'll just sit wherever we're placed. In fact, Jesus says, go find the, the worst table and go sit there. And if somebody moves you, great. But, like, but the point is the banquet and being present and sitting there having participated in the making of it. That's the reward. And I was reading one commentator, and he's saying, this must not have been a very wealthy vineyard because the master is the one going and hiring the laborers, right? Wouldn't he send somebody out there? And I just had this little thought, and and indulge me here for just a second, because this, I'm not saying that this is gospel truth, but I remember I was walking into pavilions this one time, and there was somebody standing at the front handing out flyers, and uh, she said, hey, there's a wine tasting here, it's from Dow. And I was like, oh, I've been there, like, that is the most beautiful winery that I've ever been to. And she's like, really? And then she goes, Daniel Dow is the one actually doing the pouring. Now, probably none of you know who this is, but the guy's like a rock star, right? He's like, you go to this place, and they've got this beautiful story. It's this Lebanese family that, that came to America, first France, then America, had this very, very incredible tech company that they started. They ended up selling it, and he just said, he and his brother just said, we just want to make the best wine in the world. That's our goal. So the guy will buy this piece of property there and, um, and this beautiful winery that we went and visited when we were with friends. It's not like I have this history. I'm like, that's like the one winery I've been to. But <laughs> anyway, that being said, she's like, Daniel Dow's there pouring. And I was like, awesome. And I went back there. And he, sure enough, there he is. I was like a little bit sweaty. Like, hey, it's nice to meet you. I, I think you're awesome. And, um, and he was saying, oh, you know about our wine? And I said, yes. And I said, in fact, you um, make my favorite wine. And he goes, really? What is it? And I said, the soul of the lion. And he goes, pulls it out and pours me this little plastic cup of this and hands it to me. And I just go, like, walking around the store, like, taking little sips. Like, <laughs> like wow, this is awesome. But here's my point. Why is he there? And I think he's there because he loves it. In fact, all this that he's done, to be there, to pour it himself, he's going, this is the joy. This is the work. Sure, he could pay somebody whatever to just sit there and pour out this wine, but he shows up himself in pavilions of all places, right? And there's like nobody standing in line for this. He's just there because he loves it. And honestly, I think this is what Jesus is doing with the rich young ruler. I think that this is the invitation is he's going, let's go change the world. And let's do it by serving the least. And let's do it by elevating the poor. 
Let's do it by finding the ones who are marginalized and held out and don't fit in, and let's move towards them. And let's give them the seat of honor. And let's welcome them to the banquet. What's the reward? As you're sitting at the table and Jesus pours the wine, you're like, I helped make that. (laughs) A small little contribution, right? But Paul says in Colossians that when we sacrifice, when we suffer, when we give like that, we're, we're contributing something very small but something to the cross. Not that what Christ did wasn't sufficient because it was. But maybe that's part of the joy that was before Christ. Maybe that's part of what gave him strength when he was there. He wants to do this with us. This is where his joy is. But he's saying, come with me. And I think sometimes we think, well, just let me know where to give to and I'll give to that, Jesus. Let me, tell me where. And that's, that is actually very important and that's a good thing. But I think he's going, no, I want you guys to practice this. I want you to do this when you're at work and there's that person that nobody talks to off to the side. Go sit with that person and treat them with dignity. When that, there's that person that's left out or difficult or hard, go towards the inconvenience. That to me is the beautiful link between our Samaritan parable from last Sunday and this. But I think also a link to a parable that's to come, which is the prodigal son. That ultimately in the end, in the prodigal son story, we see the son that stayed home but never really got it. That he was obedient but never experienced the intimacy. And so what we see here in this image is the fullness of the sacrifice and the cost, but also the joy and the beauty and the complexity. I told you that I'm reading this book with a book group that um, it's called The Supper of the Lamb, and it's a cookbook that's written by a theologian. It's really interesting. But this is a quote from it. He says, The world is to God as wine and chocolate are to us. Creation isn't something God needs, it's something he likes. He doesn't say, I need the world. That's a statement that would get him off the train of delight. Many stops short of, I love the world. (laughs) Therefore, the world is not something God has to have. It's the overflow of totally unnecessary love of the Trinity as they tell each other how delicious they find things. And it's precisely that deliciousness of things in the sight of God that's the taproot of our existence. We're all fine wines in God's cellar. He has all of eternity to give us the aging we deserve. Isn't that good? What am I saying that this work is the gift? As we participate in this work with Christ, it changes us, it shapes us, but it fills us with the blessing, with meaning, with purpose, with clarity. Some questions to go deeper. Number one, where in my life do I struggle with comparison and envy? Where has my eye grown dim? How might I respond instead with compassion? Who might I serve? What a like wonderful daily prayer. Who might I serve today? Whose feet might I wash? 
Number two, where in my life do I experience God drawing near to me? Where do I have the trouble experiencing Him? Is there something I'm doing that is keeping me from experiencing the closeness of God? That joining with Him, that participating, not just simply as our own, on our own and reporting to God, but operating with God in the work. This is what He wants. And I think sometimes we don't even really use that lens for our life. But to ask ourselves that question, as we think back, maybe at the end of your day, as you think back through your day, where was God close? Where did it feel like I was participating with God? To have eyes to see that and then the discernment to go towards those moments in the future. And lastly, where am I suffering today? Where do I feel the work has become wearisome or the sun's heat too hot? Ask Jesus for enough strength for today for your daily bread and remember it is enough that Jesus gives us enough enough for each day and each day we pray that give me today my daily bread and as we do we draw close in that place of dependence which I think is where we will remain for eternity would you stand with me we have speaking of bounty. We have beautiful sandwiches out on the patio today, so enjoy those. Um, if you'd like prayer, we'll be down front to pray. And um, But I want to leave you with a blessing as we close, that God would bless you and keep you. God would make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And that God would lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. God bless you. Thanks for being here, you guys.